Thank you for listening to a Quiet Church Showmans. This is Jared Sparks, one of the pastors at Christ Church Carbondale. We want to thank you so much for listening, as Ransom said, my son. And we ultimately hope that these are God-honoring. And because they are God-honoring, we hope that they are also edifying and encouraging and, and challenging to you in the best sort of way. Thanks so much for listening. Sermon title this morning is Rest on Grace. Rest on Grace. There's a big difference between religion, global religion, and Christianity. You've heard me talk about this a lot. Global religion has a, has a posture towards God like this. I screwed up. I hope my dad doesn't find out. Christianity has a completely different posture. I screwed up. I have to call my dad. I screwed up. I got to talk to him. We don't have fear of God in the same way that global religion does because we know that God's favor is upon us because of what Jesus has done for us. But there is deep in the heart, even of believers who have the Holy Spirit of God within them, a disbelief that can rise up inside of us, a disbelief in grace. Ryan and I listened to a sermon this week that was fantastic. It was like one of those getting you hooping and hollering. My, my friend Brian was preaching and closing out the book of 1 Peter And it has a lot to do with the sermon today, and we've been talking a lot about faith and works, law and grace through the book of Romans, all these kind of categories that we've been working through from Romans chapter 1 up until chapter 4, and kind of making a little bit of a turn. We're going to be making a a turn even as we get into chapter 5, and we're nailing down this doctrine of justification. How can a person be right before God? And the argument has been building, and Paul has been giving us the the problem. Here's the problem, human sinfulness. The law is not the problem. It's the human that's the problem. And there's a dilemma with that human being with the law of God because we just can't break through. We cannot get to God. So God sent Jesus to come and to save us. God came for us. We've been talking a lot about that. But do we really believe that we are saved by grace through faith? Do you really believe that you are saved by grace through faith alone? Or do we have more confidence in the law? Do we have a security blanket like Linus with the law of God? Do we have confidence in ourself? And there's a couple things that we can kind of think through that will diagnose that issue in our heart. Are you ever tempted when you sin as a believer to try to earn back the favor of God? Are you ever tempted by the enemy or your flesh? After sinning, after messing up, after, after doing that thing again, are you ever in the posture after that of thinking, I've got to get right with God. I can't call him. I can't go to him. I've got to do something first to show him how bad I really feel about this. Every one of us have been tempted like that to do something good to counteract what we've been doing bad before we can feel comfortable praying again. Because if I pray right now, I feel uncomfortable about it. But if I can do some things first, then at least I'll feel a little bit more comfortable about going to God again in prayer. I mean, the temptation is strong. Am I alone or are there others? Okay, Daniel Cohen knows what that's like. 
Have you ever been in a spot where you feel guilty for claiming God's grace again? Falling back on God's grace again just feels like it's, I'm just an abuser. I can't go to God's grace again. I can't accept that God's favor is still upon me right now, really? Maybe last week, or maybe next week, but right now, is God's favor really upon me? Maybe you've been in a spot before where you thought, God, God is really done with me. I've, I've gone too far. This battle just keeps getting the best of me. And I've gone too far. I've stepped over a line. God is done with me. If I was God, I would be done with me. Maybe you've been in a spot before where it's kind of the opposite, where you've looked down upon other Christians for not having it as together in life as you do. As if you deserve God's grace just a little bit more than the bozo who can't get it right. To that dusty Christian who walks the streets of life and just keeps collecting dust and debris and dirt and can't seem to shake those nagging sins. And we all have this inner tendency to lean towards law and works. There's just something shiny and attractive about it. We want to know how we are doing and we want some sort of measuring scale to know, am I doing all that I'm supposed to be doing? And if I've got these, these mile markers and if I'm able to say, okay, I've made it to that one and I've made it to that one, then at night when we go to sleep, we can at least take comfort in our work. I've done it. God's grace is easy to be doubted and the enemy seems to always be screaming. And when the enemy shoots his arrows, the flesh loves to rise up and claim those arrows as being true. The enemy screams, it's not really finished. It's not really finished. You have to do something to earn God's grace today. You have to do something to keep God's grace today. When Jesus said it is finished, it's really not. And our flesh listens. And somehow the enemy polishes that garbage. And we think, maybe there's an element of truth there. Maybe it's not really finished. I better get to work. And we're going to see yet again that God's grace really is enough. That God's grace really is enough to save us and to keep us. To save us and sustain us. To save us and empower and embolden us. Is justification really by faith alone? It's like the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul really wants us to get this right. Look at verse 13 in Romans chapter 4. For the promise to Abraham and to his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it's adherence to the law that are to be the heirs of the world, or heirs, faith is null, and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but to those who share the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence 
the things that do not exist. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we need wisdom. We need spiritual eyes to see. These things that we're talking about today, like the things we've been talking about for several weeks, are otherworldly. We are not naturally inclined to receive messages like this. But as people who have the Spirit of God, Holy Spirit, what I'm asking is that you would awaken our heart afresh and anew to your word to see glories and treasures and just the mountain of glory that's here for us to stare at. The spectacle, just to look at and to wander in. The very glory that we see in the work of Christ. Help us to see it this morning. And so I trust, God, that you're going to do that. Open our eyes. God, I pray that you would just do a work this morning. I trust that you're going to. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Heir of the world. Look at verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and to his offspring that he would be the heir of the world. What does it mean to be the heir of the world? The promise to Abraham and to his offspring is something that's tangible and it's real and it's earthly and it's fleshy. It's not just spiritual. It's not just ethereal out there. It has dirt with it. It has trees growing up in it. It has something you can hold and hold on to. It's a future that's not yet, but it's already promised. And the promise that we have as children of Abraham, the promise that came to Abraham, is that he and his offspring would inherit the very world. Now this is interesting. Salvation by grace through faith is going somewhere. This promise given to Abraham, that's for us. This inheritance of the world... Our faith in Christ is going somewhere. It's directional. And it's going into the future. It's marching on. The warriors of God will keep marching on until Christ brings all of his benefits, all of the benefits tangibly to us. And you, beloved brother and sister in Christ, you are inheritor not just of a family estate, not just a family debt, if your parents die in debt. You're an inheritor of this world. This earth will be given to you and you will reign in it. This world is yours. Our faith in Christ is going somewhere. It's directional. The promises of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ is that our glorification is coming and it is sure. And the authority that Jesus has on heaven and on earth will be delegated and we will reign with him on this earth. Now our inheritance is quite large. This earth is our playground. There's a Jack Johnson song that says, this city is my jungle gym. This earth belongs to us. It's just a matter of time. If you've ever struggled with money from month to month or ever struggled with thinking about the future that you have or thinking about retirement or anything like this, how about this retirement program? God's going to give you the earth and you're going to rain on it. And you're actually going to feel dirt go between your hands. Dirt that, that's real dirt will we'll feel with flesh and bone. This is, again, not some ethereal thing that we'll be walking around like Care Bear Land, skipping, and gravity won't really apply to us. We'll be walking boots on the ground in a gravitational place, actual, real, with homes that God has built for us, and we will reign in this world, and we will know each other. The family of God dwelling with each other forever as Jesus rules and reigns, and we rule and reign with Him. The promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through works of the law, but through faith, the righteousness of faith. The promise to those of us who have faith in Abraham is so much more than having our sins forgiven. It's not less than that. 
But the promise of God on our lives isn't simply as if it's simple that your sins are wiped away and righteousness is counted as yours. It's more than spiritual reality. It's physical reality. And that's what's coming your way by grace, not through works of the law. The earth and the cosmos is on a one day, it's on a course where it's going to be restored and it will all be better than Eden, better than the Garden of Eden, and we will all actually dwell in it. That's a mighty big promise that's given to Abraham and to his offspring, you. That's pretty cool. The good news and the culmination of the good news, all of this does not come through the law and we cannot so beautiful. What can you possibly do to get or to earn an inheritance like that? If you had to work for something like that, how many years would it take for you to build enough money to be able to earn in a bank account what it would require to buy this earth? You simply couldn't do it. The law cannot get you there. So it comes through the righteousness of faith. But if it were by the law, there's going to be some rhetorical questions. If you could get that by the law, if you could earn it, look at verse 14. For if it's the inheritance of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath. The law brings wrath. Now, if it were by the law, we are told that faith is null and the promise is void. Why? Why is it that we just can't earn this thing? Why is it that it's not those who are keeping with God's law who inherit the earth? Who get salvation? Because that system is quite popular. And it can get people through life sufficiently enough. Meaning, there are people who are not Christians that live their life, do their thing, live it in full, experience levels of happiness in this life that they... That satisfies them just enough, and they live by sets of laws. What, this is the way I want to do things, or I don't want to do things. This is the God I'm going to follow, or set of principles I'm going to, going to follow. And it gets them through life. Why is it that it isn't the good law keepers that inherit the earth? Because that system sounds really good. You could really control people that way. It seems like you could anyways. If you'll just do this, this, or this, you can inherit the earth. If you'll just chop your arm off, you'll inherit the whole world. You know what? If we had a mallet out here, if that was true, just chop your arm off and you'll inherit the earth. People would be lining up behind the meat cleaver. It didn't matter if they had whiskey or anything to dull the pain. They'd grab that meat cleaver and chop their arm off and take their guaranteed eternity with them. Give us something to do, for goodness sake. Let me control it. Let me do, let me, let me get this securely in my grip or my hands by something tangible to actually do. Give me something to do, for goodness sake. And I can guarantee if that was the way to salvation, chop your arm off, I'd be walking around with one arm. I want something to do. But this almost intolerable offense of saying, there's nothing for you to do, can't be standed by the masses. Can't be tolerated. There's something that has to be done for you. And then the whole world is yours. Nope, let me earn it. Intolerably offensive, the grace of God. So why is it that the promise can't come through the law? Why is it that that won't work? Well, we're told in verse 15a, it's because of this. The law 
brings wrath. That's why. The law does not bring life. The law brings wrath. There are some well-meaning Christians who believe that the law of God tells us about human ability. Let me say that again. There are well-meaning Christians that believe that the law of God gives us insight into human capabilities. So if God tells you to do something, the assumption is that must mean that God is telling me I can do it. So the law is giving me insight to my abilities. So if God, God wouldn't, and it's phrased like this, God wouldn't tell you to do something you can't do. God has the right, I will say, and we'll see in a second, to tell you to do something you can't do. He has the absolute right to do that. But well-intended people say, well, God wouldn't do that. The law tells us what we can actually do. And from that perspective, it tells us about human ability. And here's the truth of the Bible. That is dead wrong. Deadly wrong. It misses the whole point. This is an age-old argument. It goes back to two names. Have you heard of St. Augustine? Who's heard of St. Augustine before? In more scholarly circles, we'll be, we'll be more professional here. St. Augustine. Has anybody heard of St. Augustine before? St. Augustine and a man named Pelagius. And this debate about the will, it's about the nature of the will. Are human beings free or are human beings sinners? And this is a uniquely different conversation We're talk than real choices or not, okay? Not necessarily talking about people being, people can make real choices. This argument is, are people's, are, are their wills completely free, libertarian free will, or are people by nature in bondage, born in sin and under sin. And the argument goes back to the 4th century. And St. Augustine, in one of his prayers, prayed this. O Lord, command what you will. So command whatever you want to command. Sounds like a rave is going on down there, doesn't it? Like some glow sticks and some strobe lights down there or something like that. Lido, you remember that from your party days. So, okay, rewind. <laughs> Imagining Leto dancing in a rave. St. <laughs> Augustine prayed, O oh Lord, command what you will. So command whatever you want, God. You have complete liberty and freedom to command what you will. But then he prayed this, and this is what perturbed and got at Pelagius so bad. St. Augustine said, and grant what, and, and give what you command. So, grant what you, command what you will, command whatever you will, and give what you command. Meaning, you tell me what to do, and then give me the ability to do it. Because I don't have the ability to do what you command, God. And this age-old debate goes back to this, and into the, God, into the Bible itself, and Pelagius came along and said, no, 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 hold on, wait a second. If God commands it, I can do it. And this debate raged on, actually, very quickly. Pelagius was announced as a heretic. Augustine won, or Augustine won. And, and 
The whole argument centered around, okay, are humans in bondage or are humans free? And Pelagius argued and acknowledged humans have this ability to do what God commands, but St. Augustine said, no, we don't have the ability to do what God commands. See, Pelagius did not believe in the bondage of the will. He didn't believe that we were bound in sin, that we were completely free, and we were free to follow God without any hindrances whatsoever. And there are many Pelagians and semi-Pelagians still around today. Pelagius just believed that anybody at the drop of a hat could just decide, I'm going to follow the Lord now and obey Jesus' commandments. Pelagius was condemned as a heretic. And God's grace prevailed. It marched on. It rolled on and kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And this is a passage that Pelagius missed. The law doesn't bring freedom. The law brings wrath. That's what the law does. It brings condemnation our way. Humanity's way. It goes to them and tells them what to do, but it doesn't give them the power to do it. Apart from faith, what you get with the law is wrath, not grace. God did not give us the law to show us our human potential. He gave us the law to show us His holiness and to show us our need. He graciously gave us His holy law to bring humility to an arrogant humanity. To expose our sin and our need and to drive us to Himself. Imagine, I, I, I cannot dunk a basketball. Even though once a month or so, uh, I have dreams that I'm dunking on folks. I mean, I'm dunking on folks hard. I mean, this isn't just like some little, I mean, I'm just tearing it back and just, yeah! Marching over them, you know, like, <laughs> dunking on them, okay? Now, I'm several years removed from my prime, okay? But in a non-embellished story about my prime, there was a time in my day where I could take one step and jump up and grab a 10-foot rim. I don't think at this point in my life I can touch the net with two hands. And I probably can, but it, it would be, I mean, after stretching... And I mean, I mean, working it up, I could probably touch the top of the background, bottom of the rim or something like that. But, but if I was told, go dunk a basketball right now. <laughs> and I'm obligated to go dunk a basketball right now. I, I, I could either say, well, if somebody tells me to go dunk the basketball, I must be able to do it. Or I can freely admit that's impossible. I can't. I, can, I cannot... I've never have been able to, and I never will be able to. You don't get more athletic with age. It's impossible. And Pelagius looked at the mountain of the law, looked at Sinai and said, I can do it. We can do it. You can do it. It's up to you. And friends, the message of the Bible that's so different from the world that says, the world says, yes, you can do it. And, and the Bible says... It's impossible. It's impossible. Sinai is too tall, too tall. It's too high. You can't climb it. You can't do it. You can't obey it. The law brings wrath. Even we, after we are saved and empowered by the Holy Spirit, we still are bid to cry out our dependence upon the God of the universe. As believers, now we have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. We, do, we still don't look at the commands of God and say, I got this. But we wake up each morning and we say, God, I need your help today. 
Holy Spirit, lead me today. I'm desperate today. I, I need you today. I'm needy. I don't have this on my own. And anybody who would say otherwise just is not acquainted with the scriptures. Anybody waking up in the morning and saying, I got this. It's up to me. I'm going to crush this day on my own. God, you just take a back seat and cheer me on. Is somebody who has no idea what it means to be in right relationship with God. We remain needy all the days of our life. Now, in verse 15, there's an interesting phrase. It says, without the law, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. Where there is no law, there is no transgression. What it seems to be saying is something entirely different than what Paul's been saying the first three and a half chapters into the fourth, fourth chapter of, of Romans. He's been saying that there's the, the law of God stops every mouth, even those who don't know, don't know the law or don't hear the law. So we know definitively Paul is not speaking out of two sides of his mouth and saying that those who are, don't know the law are condemned by the law, but then saying, well, no, no, those that don't know the law aren't condemned by the law. There's no transgression there. But here's what he is saying, like the rest of the Bible. He's saying this, before the law, there was much that people did not know was actually sin. They still knew Internally, through the moral law of God, sin, but it works like this, coveting. If, if I had never heard, thou shalt not covet, I would have not known what coveting is. It's sin. But when the law of God is given, and then afterwards I covet, I know I have transgressed. I know there's transgression. The law brings more of a knowledge, a greater clarity of the transgression. And so it has to depend on faith. The law tells us what to do, but it announces our condemnation, not our freedom. So it's not saying innocence of the law is an excuse. Paul's already made it clear. He's simply saying when the law shows up, it shows us not what we can do. It shows us transgressions. It highlights. It's like a highlighter. This is a transgression, even though you didn't know it was. This is a transgression, even though you didn't know it was. This is a transgression, even though you didn't know it was. And so we don't arrogantly boast and say, well, I can take care of that. I can wipe it away. I can make myself right. So the conclusion in verse 16a, look at this. It's so profound. That is why it depends on faith. That's why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. That is why it depends on faith. What is it. What is it? What depends on faith? What have we been talking about? Chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4. It's a word that starts with J. What depends on faith? Justification. The promises of God that kind of explode out from justification. What depends on faith? Justification depends on faith. And because of that, therefore, or that is why it depends on faith, because it can't depend upon the law, because the law brings condemnation and transgression and reveals where we've fallen short. That's why it has to depend on faith, in order that the promise of justification, inheritance, all of the promises of God that's coming your way and that are yours right now and will be yours one day, that is why the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to its offspring. That the promise may rest on grace. There is no rest for those who hope in the law. No rest. None whatsoever. For those who have 
an awareness and a conscience level of a God, whether they're Christian or not, they will never find rest until they find grace. Ever. This is a privilege of the Christian faith. Rest. Rest. The promise rests on grace. It sits here on this word grace. And because of that, it is guaranteed to Abraham and his offspring. The promise rests squarely on grace. What does that mean? If by faith the promise rests not on our works or adherence to the law, but on something entirely different than anything that you have to do with. It rests on God. His grace. That's where the promise rests. Squarely right here on the grace of God. The promise of future land. The promise of your forgiveness of all your past and present sins. The promise of God's provision and His favor upon you. The promise of Him taking care of all of your needs. The promise of your future eternity. Rest on the grace of God. I remember how appalled I was at this. And it sounds strange to be appalled at this. But I remember there was a day in my life, 2004, I remember this was appalling to me. Appalling to me. I even preached an introductory sermon at this youth group talking about how if God did all of this, if Jesus died, then He's done enough. He doesn't need to help me. I'm going I'm to show Him how much I love Him by getting after it. God's done His part. It's time for us to get to work. This is appalling. And I remember the phrase. You guys have heard me say it before. I remember this insane person named Michael Kelly say, Jared, you're saved by the grace of God, but... I want you to know that you're also kept by the grace of God. And I remember looking at him, and it was like I was looking at the abominable snowman. You weirdo. I can kind of buy the idea that I'm saved by grace, but I know how this relationship with God actually works, Michael. I know how this thing actually works. I read my Bible. I go to church. I, I serve. I love people. Just the, the humility just oozing out of me. I know how this thing really works. I, I, I truly believed. I really believed deep down in me. It was grained within me, whether it was taught or caught. I don't know. I believe that I was saved by grace, but I'm kept in the favor of God firmly on the foundation of how well I'm doing. You see, I thought I was saved by grace, but kept my, by, by my works. I thought the promise rested on this little sandy hill called my works. And I think many practically believe this. And here's what I want you to say. Here's what I want you to hear. If that's the foundation for your assurance, if that's where you believe the promise rests, is the sandy hill of your good works, you're still walking in bondage. You're still walking in bondage. There's levels of freedom that you, brother or sister, boy and girl in Christ, there's levels of freedom that you can experience today, right now. 
There's freedom that you can have. Because you are saved by grace through faith and the promise rests on grace, on God's grace, your future and all of God's promises and salvation for you rest on the grace of God. Now let me just ask you this. If you, going back to this analogy about inheritance, let's just say that your job doesn't pay a lot right now and you're struggling month to month, but you know that in 10 years you've got an inheritance coming of $5 billion, $5 billion, okay? I've been using dollar amounts. I threw a talk to, to Adam a couple weeks ago about if I gave them a million dollars, I think it was. But let's just say you knew that inheritance was coming your way. Would that be something to look forward to? Would that be something that helped you through the trials this week? Like to know that hey, I, I can gut it out. I've got to gut it out. I'm going to do the best I can, but I've got it out. And 10 years from now, I've got a billion dollars coming my way. Now, if you know the promises of God for you, just listen to me. Your sins are forgiven, all of them. The ones you committed driving here this morning. The angry thoughts that you had to your wife or to your husband or your children. Your sins are forgiven, all of them. And the promises of God rest on you. Not because of your sensitivity to the Spirit or not. The promises of God right now, this moment, and for all eternity, rest on this thing called grace. God's grace. God's grace. How good is God's grace? Pretty good. How good are your works? But somehow that shiny... That shiny, shiny thing called works, the devil just keeps polishing up. And the flesh keeps saying, yeah, it works. I can go to bed tonight. Had a better day today. I can sleep well tonight. I love my kids a little bit more today. Talk about a comfortable pillow to lay your head upon at night. The grace of God. God's favor is upon you. That's good news. And because of that, the promises of God are guaranteed to you. It's a guarantee. It's yours. You're sealed. The Spirit of God is upon you. The God of the universe has given you eternal life. Right this very present moment, Ephesians 2 says that... Those who are in Christ are seated. He seated us with him in the heavenly places so that in the coming ages he might declare or proclaim to us the excellencies of something, something amazing. Right now, beloved, you are seated with God in the heavenly places, your actual name. And what's coming your way is guaranteed because the promise rests on grace and not upon you. That is good news. It's a guarantee. I love Stanley thermoses. You get to pick up a Stanley thermos at a yard sale or an estate sale or on the side of the road or in a trash dumpster, and you can call them up and at a thrift store for free. You can call them up and say if the cup, if it's messed up in some way, they no matter how you got a Stanley thermos, the warranty applies. No matter how you got it. 
I've gotten a Stanley Thermos before without a lid, and I said, ma'am, i got to confess here that I didn't buy this Stanley Thermos. I got it. At, she's like, doesn't matter. Do you have it in your hands right now? We'll send you a new one. So if you ever find a Stanley Thermos, pick it up, a lifetime warranty, call in, and we'll put Stanley, business, uh, Stanley out of business together. And get you a free thermos. I did this recently. With a, I picked up a Stanley thermos, called them in. They sent me a brand new one because the seal was broke. Now, it, it's warranted. And warranted and guaranteed are somewhat similar, but they're somewhat different. But as long as you own the product, Stanley thermos, if something goes wrong, they take responsibility for it. They take care of it. And the policies and promises of Stanley thermos carry no weight whatsoever compared to the promises and policies of the God of the universe. He takes responsibility for you. He owns you. He bought you with a price. You're His. You belong to Him. You're assured. The promises of God for you rest on grace. Have faith today. Take this earth. Don't walk in fear. You're the Lord's. You belong to Him. Grace is better. Things are going to go wrong. We're going to go walk through things in this life that are hard. We're going to collect bumps and bruises. Some of them, unfortunately, self-inflicted. But you will inherit this world. Your salvation is secure. Not as your works. It's as secure as the grace of God. And this is for not just Jews. This is for Gentiles as well. Verse 16b continues, not only for the adherent guaranteed to his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, which in this instance just means the Jews. This is not inheritance to the law that we just talked about just uh, adhering to the law just a few verses before. But also to the one who shares in the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Who is the father of us all. To Jew and to those who have faith, like Abraham, the Gentile, the promises are not just for the Jews. There were those who have faith in the same thing that Abraham faith in. If you have faith in Christ, you are Abraham's children and the promises of God belong to you. You have Abraham as your father and more importantly, you have God as your father. Us all, true children of Abraham. And true children of God. Faith is the way into this family. Not birth. Not by the knife of circumcision. Faith is the way into this family. Not the law. Faith. Not the law. And this all is a miracle. It's all a miracle. It's an absolute miracle. It's God bringing something out of nothing. Just like He did with creation. Something out of nothing. Look at verse 17. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. Speaking of talking to Abraham. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. All right. God gives life to the dead. This is yet another instance in which the Bible calls the human being, pre-Christ, dead. I remember when I was 13 years old, I walk out to the, walk out to the shed. I was responsible for feeding my dog Ginger for like six years. And I don't know why I was the one that was given that responsibility because regularly I forgot to feed Ginger. And uh, poor Ginger, she got old and I loved her. She had fleas everywhere. It was a, a Cocker Spaniel dog, real nice dog. But stunk, I mean, just, just stinky dog. 
and you touch her and you just smell like, to this day, I don't like outdoor dogs because you touch them and you just stink, especially if they're wet. But I walk outside and even though I, I, I didn't play with Ginger all that much, I still loved her. I mean, she's your dog, you know, your dog you had. I got her when I was like one year old. And I went out there and I found her dead. Out there, she's dead, dead as a doornail, stiff and cold, you know, like she's dead. And that's, huh? Starved to death. She probably starved to death. That's what it was. Well, she was a little, she was portly, so I, uh, hopefully she didn't starve to death. She was portly. So I went out there, cold and stiff, you know, the tears start crying, and I go in and I tell my dad, and we go in bare, to this day, if people start doing some dirt work over at Julianne Drive, 1700 Julianne Drive, they're going to find Chip, a few cats, and Ginger buried in that backyard. Cold and stiff, and no matter what I did to Ginger, she could not hear me because she was dead. She couldn't respond. It was impossible. She was dead. It didn't matter how, how loud I screamed in her ear, Ginger! She's dead. She's just dead. I didn't have the power to wake her back up. She had no strength of her own. She was dead. And I was not God. And here's the reality about the God who gives life to the dead. The dead. Life to the dead. I was ginger. I was dead. A little boy, yes. But dead. It wasn't about just being impressionable and parents pressuring. I was dead. I didn't hear from God before he woke me up. I was dead. I was ginger. I couldn't hear God no matter how Loud, somebody screamed to me the gospel of Jesus. It wasn't until God did something that was impossible. But God gives life to the dead. And God came to me and I had my Lazarus moment. As Jesus walked in John chapter 11, Lazarus, get up! He walked to me as a little boy, Jared, it's time. Get up. And he breathed life into me. And God did the impossible. Jared, arise. And then and only then did I hear his voice and come to him as a little boy. Then and only did, do I, did I hear his voice and come to him as a little boy. He calls into existence the things that do not yet exist. And friends, there is a you that God introduced you to when he did the impossible for you. There was a you that God introduced you to that you didn't know exist. And when he brought you to life, you stepped into your real personhood. Who you really are. And we have dead people walking around all over the place. And our hope is not in their deadness. Our hope is in the God who brings life to the dead. And he calls into existence things that do not exist. And there is a you that did not exist before God remade you. And as we, as Bible-believing Christians, we believe in this thing called being born again. And you cannot be in the Christian faith, you cannot be in the Christian faith without having some supernatural event happen to you. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Garrett and I just talked about this yesterday. It's one of the first verses I, remember, I memorized. It's 2 Corinthians 5, 17, I just memorized it. If anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. Behold, the old has passed away and the new 
has come. If anyone is in Christ, he has been made new. God has made you from what didn't exist. You are a new you. And some people's conversion stories are radically different than others. But you cannot get in this thing without being remade. Reborn. Made new. Born again. And for some of you who are born a little bit later, born again later in life, you know this about yourself. If you're converted, especially out of wild living or something like that, you know as you look back a little bit later in life that you are a different person before you were born again. There's a new you. You're different. And even me, you say, well, I was just five years old. Well, the Bible tells me I was brought from death to life, so it must be true. I can't tell you a radical conversion story like many of you can, but I know it's radical nonetheless. That a five-year-old can really be born again? God is the God of impossible. And He can do anything. The old you died. And the new you came forth. You are God's man. You're God's woman. You're God's boy. You're God's girl. You have been bought with a price. You are his business. And he's a really good businessman. He knows how to take care of what is his. Are you going to struggle? Is every area of your life going to look radically different than it did before? No. But you will be different than you were before. And the things you didn't hate before, you now hate. Because you're made new. The anger you used to have before, you don't have as much anymore. The battle that you used to have before, it may rage on, but you're weeping more about it. You're calling friends for help, you're getting help, and you're fighting it more because you've been born again and you know, I can't do this the rest of my life. I've been made new. I've been bought with a price. I'm the Lord's. Beloved, the grace of God is better than your works. And your salvation is secure as Christ is secure. And beloved, if you're in Christ, God will never be through with you. He will never be through with you. I want you to lay your head on the pillow tonight and rest knowing that the grace of God, the promises of God for you are not resting on you. They're resting on the grace of God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your mercy, your kindness, that you would not give us a wretched gospel that says, it's up to you, I'll kickstart this thing, I'll save you, and then I'll pat you on the butt, give you the Holy Spirit, and tell you, you've got this now. I thank you, Jesus, that the appalling truth is actual reality, that we are saved by your grace and we're kept by your grace. And God, I pray, as we see next week, as we get into sermon title, Life, Faith on Fire, Faith on Fire. As we look at Abraham, we see these mighty acts of faith. People who know how secure they are in Christ, get after it. And in faith, go out boldly, ripping, a lot, ripping the heads off of lions and ripping apart bears and not scared if they get their head chopped off because they know the promises of God are secure. And so, God, strip away fear from us. Help us to know that right now, if we are in Christ, that your promises are upon us. And I pray that we just be overwhelmed with joy thinking about that.
If there's anybody here that doesn't know you that's not been born again, I pray this morning that you would drop life into them and you would not just resuscitate them, that you would resurrect them. That you would bring them to life, drop life upon them. And I pray that for the first time, people in this room would go (gasps) and breathe. They would breathe and experience your grace and they would repent of their sins and they would trust in Jesus. And Lord, as we sing these songs, help us to actual think, actually think about the words we're singing. And not just go through the motions. I'm sick and tired. I don't want to go through motions. I want to engage. I want to hear from God and respond to God and sing to God in joy. And I pray that you would unleash that this morning. You can help us. It's going to be our joy to sing to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If there's any-